Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Greg Hart, chair of the Santa Barbara County Board of Supervisors and definitely one of my favorite sources over the years. Greg's always just like this intellectual political genius and I love listening to him talk because it really helps me the reporter understand things how are you doing today Greg I am excellent and thank you for that amazingly kind introduction it's always a pleasure to talk with you about everything local politics and and life oriented yeah well you know I miss you because I cover City Hall and covered you for so many years and I really enjoyed when you would flip on the mic and it was your time to explain or, or deliberate and talk about the issues because as a reporter, you're just looking to be informed. Like, I want to figure this out. And I always knew when you would talk, I was going to get lots of quotes and lots of rich material. And I don't cover the county as much other than here and there, a drop-in kind of basis. So I don't get to see you. But I wanted to sort of dive right in and just sort of talk to you about where you're at in this moment in time. We're obviously dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, which has upended every aspect of everyone's lives. And you know, a year ago, none of us saw this coming. And now we're all just sort of trying to survive and struggle and get through it. But you're sort of at the, the middle, ground zero of it. You're chair of the County Board of Supervisors, and you are the person who opens up every county public health press conference on this issue. And I just wanted to sort of ask you, what's it like to be you in this moment dealing with this once in a lifetime mm -hmm. pandemic at this local level? What's it like to be in this spot? It's intense and it's challenging and um, hard. And I'm doing the best I can. There are a lot of people working at every level of government who are in the same place and trying their best to help protect people and provide some level of information and encouragement and hope. And that's probably the best we can do in this moment. It's, it's extraordinary. None of us have gone through this in our lifetime. There's no preparation for a moment like this. But um, I do rely on the things that I've learned being a public elected official for a long time. And uh, the most important thing that I think I try to bring is you know, candor and uh, a sense that we're going to get through this because, you know, we have to and um, the moment requires it. So what it goes into the opening five minutes where you mm -hmm. usually talk, uh, I'm often listening. Sometimes I have been there in person and you set the tone right at the beginning. You go first. Tell me a little bit about sort of what goes into that process and how do you decide what you're going to say and what you're going to do? Is it something you're doing 20 minutes beforehand because it's everything's changing or just help me understand that process? It starts days ahead. You know, I'm running through ideas in my mind um, as I'm accumulating information and having conversations with people. I'm asking people what they think folks want, want to hear and need to hear and what information would be helpful to the conversation. Ironically, last night, I was talking to my almost 90-year-old mother and asked her, what, do you, what do, would be useful to you? How could you benefit from some information? And then when the day comes, um, I come in early and start writing um, the material. And we talk about it as a staff and I ask questions of folks who are working at the county, see if there's anything that's really urgent and current to be integrated into that. And it evolves over the course of the day. The governor has his press conference at noon. Oftentimes that changes um, everything. In fact, end up starting over 
with a whole new approach and a whole new focus. Um, and then it has to be done by you know four o'clock. We've literally raced before from leaving here at the office downtown and getting out to the press conference, you know, 4.10 with wet ink pieces of paper because something significant changed over the course of the day. But um, it's, I think it's helpful. I hope it's helpful. I, I do want people to have a place that they can go for a trusted source of information. This is a really complicated moment in all of our lives because um, media has changed and so many people are getting information from non-traditional sources that are not reliable. And I, so I think it is important that the role journalism plays in vetting public information and getting accurate, um, honest information to the public is more critical than ever, particularly uh, because the competition isn't vetted and isn't honest. And um, that's a big part of this job is communicating to not just the people who are regularly engaged, who are um, information uh, junkies and want to be engaged in local government and politics, but to, speaking to the 450,000 people in the county and asking them all to be part of a solution to a, a urgent, active public health threat is a real challenge. What's it like to have to deal with the array of media questions? You know, you brought up the media. And so you have people in the room who will ask questions and you have people calling in mm -hmm. and asking questions. I know as a journalist, I get emails from members of the public who will say, why aren't you asking them this? Or mm -hmm. you need to do your job as a journalist. You're the ones who have access to them and you need to press them on this statistic or this data. A couple of times I've asked the question, mm -hmm. you know, if I feel like it rises to the level, I imagine you're getting way, way, you know, tons of those kinds of emails from the public. What's it like for you to have to deal with sort of this barrage of media mm -hmm. questions where things are like, well, why aren't you doing this? And what about this? And why not this? And, you know, we're journalists. Everything We're coming at it from a perspective of like a deficit, right? Like mm -hmm. what's wrong and why is it wrong and why aren't you fixing it? Mm -hmm. You're a pro, but how do you handle that when you hear that sort of focus to the questions? It's challenging and... Um, some days it's really hard and some days I have answers that are ready and fit the question well and are helpful and other days, you know, I'm struggling to come up with, a, with an angle that makes sense. Part of it is the time format limitation in the press conference. We don't have a chance to have a long conversation like we are today and so the answer has to be relatively succinct. Um, which is one of the reasons why I use the, the introductory remarks to kind of set the tone. Yeah. There's more time there. There's, you know, it's about five minutes long and it gets, it gets a chance to, to raise a point, support it, you know, and, and with a conclusion. Whereas the questions don't afford that time and the structure is limited. So um, I get a lot of emails that ask questions too and that give me a more of an opportunity to provide more background and, um, this is, this is really a challenge, though, and I, and I, I hope it's working. Um, you know, the feedback I get generally is people are, like it and appreciate it and value it, um, but they always want more, and everybody wants more. And, and part of the problem is, is that we don't have answers to some of the questions because this is a new virus that we don't have the answers to. And I thought that um, Dr. Fitzgibbons maybe spoke to this last week at the press conference where she said, you know, the answers to the questions have changed, because the science has changed, yeah. you know, and that's, we didn't know things at the beginning that we do know now, and that will continue. We will learn things in the future. And so it's hard 
for folks to adapt to that, but that probably is the most important thing we have to do as a community is to develop that resiliency and that adaptability and flexibility, knowing that what we're asking people to do today may not be what we're asking them and need them to do two months from now or three months from now. And, I, and no one can predict what that's gonna be. And people are making serious life uh, decisions about their businesses, their children's education, you know, major events that normal circumstances circumstances would have complete information to make decisions about that. And people would be comfortable knowing that all of the questions had been answered and vetted in advance and that the best solution had, had been a product of collaboration, community dialogue. That's not necessarily the case right now. We're going with completely incomplete information. Yeah. That's sort of a weird way to say it, but um, that's how decisions have to be made. You, you don't get to, to wait on the decision until you have the information. You have to make a choice, you have to make a call, and um, that's what we're doing. Yeah, let's just one time and then we'll move on. You know, there's that group of, there's a group of people out there who, who say, Government's killing the economy. It's killing local businesses. How many businesses do we have to lose because we have um, a lot of positive cases? Majority of them in, are in North County, and they'll look at the data and they'll sort of parse it and figure out a way to say it's not that bad in Santa Barbara. How do you sort of explain that or respond to that to those people who say we really need to figure out something different for Santa Barbara because most of the cases are in? Santa Maria or in North County and our economy is really struggling and suffering and some of these businesses will never come back. Government, why are you doing this to us? I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I feel that pain yeah. personally. I, I agree with the point that this is an incredible burden and that the challenge economically is as severe as the public health threat. And that is the truth. You know, we cannot have um, businesses collapse the way they are potentially going to. We can't have unemployment that is, you know, tens, twenties of thousands of people in the county uh, without a way to make a living. There, there are so many people right now that are dependent on the $600 a week federal unemployment supplemental insurance uh, program and that that is ending this week. And Congress is, you know, still dithering back in Washington trying to come up with a plan. And the, the parties are wildly far apart. And this is people's livelihoods at stake. And this has to be solved. So, you know, I don't think of these things as separate. The, the health pandemic response, protecting people's health is critical. And protecting the economy and the economic health of our community is critical. And those things can't be managed separately. They are connected and intertwined, just like everything is. And so we need to figure out strategies that can work for both. But it's not easy to do because the, the fundamental problem with the pandemic is mixing people and, and the, the transmission of the virus. So as we keep businesses open and we encourage people to, to go to business and support them, there's a conflict there. Now, the best solution to that is the simple solution of wearing masks. And if, and if folks were wearing masks and they were keeping six feet of distance when they can, at, at, at as, as, as much as they possibly can, and they were rigorously washing their hands, I think that is the path. I think that's the way we can have both things happening at the same time. And I think that is happening to a large degree. We're, we're seeing more and more compliance. We're, we're doing better. Um, 
but have we hit the right exact balance point between open and closed and safe? And um, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that we're going to know that. We're going to have to keep adjusting. You know, we're not, we don't live in an island. We're not able to wall off Santa Barbara County and keep ourselves um, immune from other influences around the state and the country. And the surge in cases that are happening across the country is very troubling and very concerning. You know, the airport is open and the freeways are open and people are moving all over the state. And the governor has that perspective is to see the bigger picture and the landscape beyond our county and to say, you know, this is how these things are fitting together. And and I'm, I've been impressed, you know, to date with the governor. It's, it's an impossible job, but he's been active and um, you know, was one of the the very first state in the in the country to issue the stay at home order. I thought that was the right thing to do, and it made a difference. And we may be getting closer, unfortunately, to something like an intervention like that again, um, out of necessity because the cases are not declining in major metropolitan areas in, in California. Um, my sister lives in the Bay Area, and she was talking about her husband's a physician. And he is now um, working 12-hour days again because of the, they have transferred doctors out of the hospital locally to other hospitals in the neighborhood, in the region, and they're having to backfill those shifts. And that was, that's in the Bay Area where they were the very first places to shut down. And they kept businesses closed for longer than we did here. And, you know, the, the outbreak is accelerating up there. So this is a really tough balance and I, and I respect the point of view of people who are really worried about the economy uh, because I share their concern. Yeah. Let's do a flashback now. Let's go back in time. I first met you when I was covering city council a while ago, mm-hmm. 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Um, and you were sort of uh, gearing up to kind of take a break at that time. You had already been serving for a while before I started covering it. Um, What's uh, Santa Barbara like today versus 20 years ago in terms of, you know, your experience, the issues that you were dealing with back then? And, of course, you got reelected later. But how would you describe how Santa Barbara's changed in the past 20 years? Well, I've been here a long time. I, you know, I was born um, in Fullerton, California, and moved to Lompoc when I was two years old. And we lived in Lompoc until I was five. And my dad got his, his um, second professional job as a librarian. He was the library director for the city of Santa Barbara, previously the library director for the city of Lompoc. And uh, we came here from when I was five years old and I've lived here ever since. So I have seen a lot of changes in Santa Barbara. And, you know, I do keep thinking that there have been many, many changes for the better. You know, the community is so much richer culturally and socially and, you know, the things that are available from an entertainment standpoint, arts and lectures, the County Bowl, all of the wonderful uh, cultural nonprofit institutions, you know, have grown and become much more significant in that time. But it was a smaller place a long time ago, too. There was less traffic. There was housing was much more affordable. People um, of much broader economic spectrum could easily live here in Santa Barbara. And so those things have gotten worse and, and are more difficult and more challenging for people. And I think that has kind of changed the mix of people that live in our community, too. It's made it harder for middle class working people to stay here and live here and raise family. And so you see that in neighborhoods, um, that that's, there's less of that. And more people have moved here from other places to retire here. Because if you think about you know, somebody who's do, done well in Iowa um, with a car dealership, 
they decide they don't want to live there anymore and they want to move someplace in California, Santa Barbara comes quickly to the top of the list. So that's changed the politics, that's changed the sense of community, that's changed, um, that's brought a lot of talent to our community too. So it, it's a double-edged sword. But on balance, when I travel around the country you know, and visit other places, I always come back to Santa Barbara Airport or drive up the 101 when I'm coming home from a trip and take a breath and sigh and say, I'm really glad that I live here. Yeah. And when I'm traveling around places and people ask where I'm from, and I say Santa Barbara, almost universally people go, wow, that's a, I've been there. That's a nice place to live. So I think, you know, as a community, as, um, as a, a collaborative experiment in organizing ourselves, we've done really well, um, despite really tough changes um, in the economy and in demographics and um, uh, the global progress and catastrophe that's happening at the same time. Who did you serve with? You served with Marty Bloom. You served with Rusty Fairley, Dan Secord, Dr. Dan Secord. Did you serve with Harriet Miller when she I did. was mayor? Harriet yeah. was mayor and yeah. Tom Roberts was a council oh, member yeah. and Ellie Langer and yeah. Gil Garcia. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of different people, lots of different perspectives and um, different party representation. Um, and everybody contributed. I've been very happy to have been fortunate enough to have really dedicated uh, colleagues and people who universally care about Santa Barbara deeply. Have you changed at all politically um, since your early days as a elected uh, official? Um, have you found that you've learned or changed? Uh, my perspective of it was you're always sort of like this moderate that mm -hmm. people like Dr. Secord, the late Dr. Secord, would sing your praises. They didn't care about your party registration because they felt like, well, he really understands how to govern locally. Um, and, but then you obviously have a great base, you know, with um, Democrats on the left. Uh, have you sort of changed at all? Or how have you sort of finessed and come to be sort of who you are politically today? Yeah, I think I have. And I think it's in response to how the world's changed. And I think it's in response to the things we just talked about. The challenges have changed and um, politics has changed. And unfortunately, um, politics has gotten more partisan and it's gotten more divided and the gap is bigger and you know that center space has shrunk as people have gotten more um, partisan and more ideological and divided you know and if you go back the entire time that I've been on um, elected office you know the media landscape and the information sources have completely changed. You know, there used to be one newspaper in Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and there was the Santa Barbara News Press, and then there was a second newspaper, which was the Santa Barbara Independent, and um, there were three television channels. You know, and now there's a spectrum, and everything from the internet that comes. NewsHawk is an amazing new resource that is. You know, irreplaceable today, but didn't exist that long ago. So the way people get information, the way they process that information, and the way they collaborate across that chasm has changed. And so, you know, I think I try still very consciously to be respectful of my colleagues, whatever their perspective, and listen really carefully to public input when that um, comes into my office through emails or in the public hearings and try and use some of the institutional memory that I bring to these conversations and, and say, you know, yeah, we, we, we tried that <laughs> and here's what happened and this is why we're doing it this way. 
And I think that probably is one of my better strengths is that, that understanding and the ability to communicate that and put it into context and have people recognize that um, the moment isn't unique. It's the end of a longer period of time and the product of what we've been doing you know, for, for years. And um, you can't look at it in isolation. You gotta understand how it fits into that. And that, that I, I know those things, and so I'm able to bring that to the conversation. I know you remember the basketball courts proposal. Yep. Was it East Beach? Was that where it was going? Bar- that was Barry East Burkus? Beach, ne- next to Ledbetter Beach, next okay. to the Shoreline Beach Grill. Yes. Okay, that's so. So uh, you're a big basketball player, basketball yep. fan, and uh, there was a proposal. This was after the skateboard park, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, years later, to. Build Which was a big course. struggle by itself. The skateboard park was a, was a long story, too. I don't want to yeah. cut off your question, but that's another one, too. Yeah, and we're, did you advocate for the skateboard yes, park? Yes, in fact, right. um, Harriet Miller and I really pressed on that. There was a temporary skateboard park that was set up at Santa Barbara Junior High School with wood plywood ramps because skateboarding was exploding in popularity and there was no place for kids to go legitimately. Yeah. And when you when we set up the temporary skateboard park at Santa Barbara Junior High, it was enormously successful and it was incredible to see these athletes you know, flying through the air and executing 360 flips and things. And it was just obvious that we needed to find a home for that. And yet none of the neighborhood parks that it was suggested, um, all the neighborhoods had objections to it. You know, we started in the Mesa, we went up to McKenzie Park, there were all kinds of other ideas, but for one reason or another, you know, noise or, you know, the, the inappropriateness of a particular neighborhood park for kind of a regional facility like that. Um, we, we stumbled on the, the waterfront and said, well, how great would that be? Let's put this in the front yard of Santa Barbara, not tucked away in some neighborhood that's going to have uh, the wrong kind of impact. Let's put, let's put it out there and celebrate it. These are incredible athletes, and the tourists and the residents will go down and be amazed by it. And sure enough, it worked, and it was oh. spectacular. And that my thought process was similar with basketball. I thought, you know, this is a great, wonderful activity to have outdoors, you know, in the front yard on the beach. But, you know, the Coastal Commission has something to say about that. Everybody in town had something to say about that. And, you know, it was one of those ideas that didn't get traction. So, you know, I have lots of thoughts and lots of ideas. Some of them are good. Some of them um, are not so good. Some of them work. Some of them don't work. What ultimately sank the basketball courts? I remember it was proposed, a big deal and then it just kind of whimpered or you know faded I, I think yeah. there were enough people who really didn't think that was appropriate in the mm-hmm. front yard of Santa Barbara mm-hmm. that you know they wanted the beach to be for the traditional recreation at the beach and you know there there, there is a conflict it, it would have required trading off pe- uh, park benches and picnic area there on, at Ledbetter Beach for you know a concrete basketball court and you know in the big picture of things Maybe that wasn't the right place. There was another opportunity later, years later, um, behind the chromatic gate, and that now has become an active um, exercise equipment location that people use every day and and really value too. So that's kind of maybe just a variation, different sport, but the same idea. You know, let's celebrate getting outdoors, being physical, getting exercise. Um, and if I, you know, I'm still a basketball fan. I don't play anymore. But um, the Lakers are coming on TV, I think, on Saturday morning at yeah. 8 o'clock. And I'll, I'll tape it and watch the game. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, what do you think of, you know, we, I asked you earlier how Santa Barbara's changed, but like a micro level, a funk zone. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Back then, the funk zone was entirely different than what it is now. What do, what do you think of like how the funk zone is now sort of like, well, you know, COVID's affected everything, but was and will be eventually again like this sort of hotbed for young people to enjoy themselves i mean what do you how did that happen absolutely with no planning by the city those were entrepreneurs who took advantage of the zoning that was down there and went and invested and created something organically and naturally and um it it's incredible that no one was talking about that in fact at the time before the funk zone actually was created there was a lot of conversation about that being a housing site. If you can picture the other side of State Street going towards City College, there's a residential hotel neighborhood down there mm-hmm. between State Street and Castillo and Cabrillo and the freeway. And um, I thought that would probably be a great way to redevelop the Funk Zone area into that kind of a residential neighborhood with um, higher density, density housing, rental housing. And um, we certainly need that. And that might have been an, uh, an outcome. But the Coastal Commission does not want to take coastal property in the coastal zone and have it go to residential resources, because residential uses, because it's limited. You know, there's only so much coastal area. And so they want visitor serving. They want ocean-related uses. And so the Funk Zone um, mix was a closer match to that coastal related restrictions Mm -hmm. and that created an opportunity to do that and the result is what it is now you know looking back on it state street has suffered as a result Mm -hmm. because we have way more retail space for a community our size than we can support and so as we've grown the funk zone and it's become popular state street has suffered and those things are absolutely connected Um, and so here we are now where folks are concerned about the future of state street and what to do about that and it's probably true there's just too much retail but how do you shrink that how do you how do you have that naturally or through a planned process change is not easy because the property values are very very high you know it's hard to make a transition from something to something else and um, at the same time you know the internet is taking over retail sales in a dramatic way and, and undercutting the ability of local retailers to make a living and sell products and have people buy. So that's another hole that's in the mix. And you know this is, and then add on COVID into the whole conversation. And this is probably a giant inflection point at this moment, uh, where property values will come down, rents will come down, and maybe things that weren't economically viable a year ago will become economically viable again at a lower price point. But there's going to be a lot of pain in that adjustment process for the property owners um, that currently expect high rent, but probably aren't going to get that in the future. Today's podcast is brought to you by Goodwin and Tyne Properties. They've been in business for more than 16 years in Santa Barbara. Goodwin and Tyne offers full-service real estate brokerage with attorney-trained realtors who work together as a team to deliver their clients the most professional concierge service available. You can reach Goodwin and Tyne Properties today at 805-899-1100 or at www.gtprop.com. That's www.gtprop.com. What do you think of the State Street Promenade? Have you been down there? Um, I've been down there reporting, and there's a lot of people down there, and they seem to be enjoying themselves, and um, it's sort of like mind-boggling. It's like, whoa, look at all these tables that are out there in the street. There's all these people. You never could have envisioned that it would be like that. Um, 
What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I've been down and I've had the same reaction. And um, what is striking, I think, is that it's not consistent. You know, yeah. it, it is a huge concentration of restaurants that seem to be very successful in, I think, the 500, 500 block of yeah. State Street. But as you go up the street, it's not the same thing. Right. And so I don't know how you fix that and how you adjust that. And maybe, um, and that's part of this this change is, is, is it sustainable for the whole length of State Street? Mm -hmm. 13 blocks, when you think about the, the Dolphin Fountain at the base of Cabrillo, all the way up to the top, you know, at Victoria and Sola, is a really long stretch. Yeah. When you go to other communities and you think about successful downtown retail areas, you think about the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, you think about Pasadena's Old Town, you think about the Gas Lamp District in San Diego, those things are three and four blocks long, and they're much bigger communities. Yeah. Pearl Street in Boulder, same thing, you know, a couple of blocks, two, three blocks. So us finding a solution to 13 blocks is going to require a, a unique Santa Barbara solution. Yeah, we had this sort of, all this stuff happen at once. The State Street opened to pedestrians, uh, closed to cars. It was, I think, Memorial Day weekend when it opened. And then we, of course, had the protest from the George, George Floyd uh, killing. And so we had all this stuff happening. We have these three protests over two weeks, which were unlike anything I've ever covered. What did you think of how Santa Barbara and people uh, came out mm -hmm. and, and protested? And you know, they made a lot of demands of the police department. But I mean, somebody who's been in Santa Barbara, you, I imagine you were impressed by the just the amount of people who peacefully did all that. What did you think of it? It is. It's inspiring, and um, I have so much hope that we're gonna take this moment and make real change. And um, particularly on the criminal justice side, that's where I've been trying to focus here at the county. Mm -hmm. you know, we have responsibility, um, the, the sheriff has primary responsibility for operating the jail, but the county runs that system, the incarceration system in our county. And I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for progress and reform and this extra scrutiny that the public is bringing to the conversation and the the impassioned demand that we do things differently and better is really going to help that reform effort um, i was engaged in that conversation and that work before this the demonstrations and the, and the horrible uh, murder of mr floyd but um this adds tremendous impetus to that and just we had a hearing last week where um, sheriff brown and district attorney dudley and uh, Public Defender Tracy McCuga and the Probation Chief uh, Tanya Heitman and the Behavioral Wellness Director Alice Gleghorn all were together saying essentially the same thing with different emphasis and different focus from each individual person. But, you know, we need to divert more people out of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. There are too many people suffering from poverty and mental illness and communities of color are overrepresented in the people that are in our jail system. And we, we know there are techniques and there are interventions that can, can heal people, provide um, legitimate justice to victims, and, um, and do it in a more compassionate and effective way. And this is a tremendous opportunity. The jail population 10 years ago was, was around 1,200 people and is now down to slightly more than 500 people. Mm -hmm. And public safety has not been compromised in that transition. And so how, how we sustain that and keep that going and um, save money and provide better outcomes is the most important focus in that space to me 
as an elected official and what I'm trying to bring to the conversation. Yeah, I covered that meeting. I don't usually cover the county and I, I uh, for a million, whatever, you know, I got assigned to that one and uh, it was fascinating. I was, I was figuratively drooling watching the meeting yep. because I love covering city council and government meetings because when you know the players, you can sort of know what's really happening, not only outward facing, but kind of behind the scenes. And so with that meeting, I was just thinking, this must be like a historic moment because everybody in the room is sort of trying to figure out a way to do something that for a long time has been a pretty fractured sort of issue, you know. And, and it was interesting to hear how many people in the jail had interaction with, you know, as, as, as young people, they've mm-hmm. been, you know, as juveniles. And then the number of people with mental health issues mm-hmm. as well as substance abuse yep. issues. And there are probably a lot of people who just sort of think, oh, bad people, they're mm-hmm. in jail, they did bad things. But everybody has uh, a story, you know, and, mm-hmm. and some people, maybe they don't belong in jail, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they need to be in a different place where they can get the help that they, they need. And so that was fascinating to hear everybody talking about that and it seemed like that was a real pivotal moment that day that three four hour meeting however long it was uh, how how's it different being on the county versus mm-hmm. the city council city council i feel is more containable i mean mm-hmm. you sort of geographically you have this area there's no social services housing really drives things and the county is just like so big mm-hmm. uh, what has been the difference for you in trying to Governed on the county versus the city council. I think you described that perfectly. <laughs> that was exactly my reaction yeah. too. Is that wow? This is a big county, and it's very different. You know, the focal points and the 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 issues are broader and and different. Um, you know, the fact that we're trying to integrate the Santa Maria Valley, the San Ynez Valley, city of Santa Maria, you know, with Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and Carpinteria, the diversity of that palette is extraordinary. And it kind of mirrors the state of California and maybe even in the country. You know, when you think about, we have major agricultural economy communities. We have very wealthy expensive exclusive we have young students in large numbers in an educational institution we have homeowners and people in every part in between lompoc valley you know with and all of its um, connections to vandenberg air force base it, it is a very interesting complicated tableau and my colleagues come across from a very wide perspective of um, <laughs> ideological views about that and, um, and the things we do as a county, like you described, we have social services, we have criminal justice responsibilities, things, mental health, um, things that were not part of the palette at the city of Santa Barbara as a council member. The city of Santa Barbara is a full service city. It's got a lot of responsibilities. It's got you know, water, wastewater, airport, harbor. So it's a very complex organization in its own self too. And there are a lot of moving pieces and parts and constituencies and complexities. Um, and, and the counties, those and more. And so it, it has been um, a learning curve to understand those things and how they fit together. But fortunately, you know, early in my career in politics, my first job at, um, in, in professional capacity after graduating from UCSB was working for a state legislator. I worked for Jack O'Connell for about seven years or so. And so I understood the relationship of the state and county government and how local governments um, fit into that mix. So it wasn't completely unfamiliar to me and, and that experience helps me um, bridge the gap in knowledge and experience. 
So when you were Greg Hart growing up, you know, junior high, elementary, high school, were you kind of just like this wonky guy who really sort of loved uh, data and statistics and mm-hmm. politics and, and sort of um, trying to figure things out? Because I, I, you're definitely a different tier of elected official. You know, you, you seem like you could, well, you worked for SBCAG, but right. it seems like you could be the administrator also. It's mm-hmm. it's not common when you have a person who can be on the council as elected, but also be doing the job of the top manager. And I sort of get that sense mm-hmm. that you have both skill sets. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up mm-hmm. and how did you develop? Were you born that way or did you just sort of pursue it through your curiosity? I think I'm really lucky to have had the parents I had because my dad was an intellectually curious person Mm -hmm. and he was a library director and he read voraciously and he inspired in me a love of reading and you know brought books home all the time said read this read that try that we had fascinating conversations at the dinner table my mom was a, a teacher and um, I was intellectually curious and challenged by them, and they engaged me. And my father talked about being county politics at our dinner table because he was a department head here at the county as a library director. And he also worked with the city council. So that kind of dialogue was a normal part of our conversation. And um, I just have continued to be a lifelong learner. I continue, I'm a voracious reader, I consume information all the time. And I, I find it super helpful because it brings me, it brings those, that wide range of knowledge to the conversations that we bring about public policy. And um, I just, we're so fortunate here to have this incredible library system, to have universities, you know, three universities in a small space, and to have all the people that are engaged in those, those businesses, part of our f- social fabric. Uh, again, I'm a huge fan of arts and lectures. I go to, I probably go to 20 lectures a year, and I, I suck that stuff up, and I think it helps me be an elected official. So, um, but I was not a geeky kid. I, you know, I was playing with my friends in the creeks, and um, you know, but but I do I do like learning things. Uh, so, what is Greg Hart like when he's not at the county board of supervisors? Mm-hmm. You know, I know COVID everybody's home now and not doing what they used to but tell me a little bit about how you enjoy Santa Barbara and mm-hmm. what kind of social things you like to do well I think you know it, it is definitely different now yeah. and, and there isn't much off now yeah. it, it is an all-consuming job and I basically you know come home at the end of a really long day um, and try and get some exercise and watch something on Netflix or read a book and go to sleep and start and do the whole thing all over again. On the weekends, I try to get some hiking in, mm-hmm. but you know, there's no traveling now. There's no, um, there's no arts and lectures. There's no, there's no movies at theaters. So it's really different, and it's I'm missing that connection. You know, I used to love all the, the community events that we have in Santa Barbara, all the nonprofit. Um, celebrations and community gatherings and seeing people. In fact, just the other day, I, I decided I was just start calling folks that I had, haven't seen in the last almost six months now, yeah. and just reach out and say, "How are you doing?" And I, you know, I can't see you, but at least I can talk to you. And that was really helpful. And I think that that might need to be part of the the new strategy going forward. Is 
you know, they're not going to be spontaneous connections anymore where you just run into people and you get to have a conversation. You have to be more intentional about that. And so this is, this is part of being adaptable and resilient and figuring out how we can live with this virus. I'm not going to be so passive about waiting for those things to, to come to me. I'm going to have to create those things and to create a life that's fulfilling, sustainable, and um, livable in a, in a different moment. As somebody who's been doing public policy and been an elected official for 30 years, maybe, uh, what are some of the things that you would do differently or maybe some, some big votes, things where you may have said something differently or, or handled it? Is there anything like that where you sort of look back and say, oh, I definitely would do that? I mean, I have that with stories. I'll read stories and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I wrote it that way. I would do it so much differently now. And sometimes I'll be like, wow, I can't believe I that was such a good story. You know, mm-hmm. We learn as we go. But is there anything where you're like, I watched that or mm-hmm. our council or our board didn't handle that as best as they could? You know, I think the thing that, that I often reflect on is how long everything takes. Yeah. And that is a constant um, challenge because our deliberative community collaboration style it does not deliver change fast. And so COVID is a great example of how we can pivot when need be. And the State Street Promenade is a good example of that. And this progress that we're making in regards to uh, reducing the jail population is another great example of that. So I think if I'm just going to take something away from right now, what we've learned yeah. is that we need to push harder to go faster. Yeah. And that, that is something that I've always felt frustrated by in 30 years of doing this. The change is too incremental and not sufficient for the moment. And so I hope that's something that sticks and lasts. And, and it, it really reinforces that instinct that we need to do this better and differently. So you've been on the council, you've worked for Jack O'Connell, you've been a board of supervisor, you were on the California Coastal Commission, mm-hmm. as I recall, you worked for yep. SB CAG and yep. you ran a daycare center. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you have a favorite thing that you've done in your mm-hmm. life or, or something, if you could capture that moment and say, this was Greg Hart at its best? Mm-hmm. Um, Anything like that? You know, honestly, I think that this moment right now, I am using everything that I have learned over 30 years and applying it intensely at a different level than I ever had. And I feel like I'm in the right place at the right moment. And uh, I think it's helping. And I think that um, that I'm really, I'm not content or satisfied, but I'm challenged. And this is, this is really hard. And I'm, I'm 100% focused in the moment, and, that, and that's probably a good thing in life. It, being present and being um, focused is what we all kind of try to do, and uh, I'm not having a hard time challenging, being challenged in that space right now. So obviously we know COVID is a thread that runs through everything, but what are the big issues at the county that you're looking out at the next couple of years as things that the county's going to have to deal with? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously the environment you know, and, and climate change and fundamentally doing business in a more sustainable way is you know the top of the list providing it that doing that in an economically viable way um, I'm really concerned about the recession that, that is happening from COVID that is likely to continue I you know the uncertainty of this moment is making it very difficult for business people to make decisions and predict and invest and um, create jobs that we need in the future 
And then housing is always a challenge. And so those things all fit together. And that, you know, how are we going to be able to build a future for the next generation? My son's 25 years old. He's just hopefully going to be finishing college here at UCSB over the next um, couple of semesters. Um, what are his job prospects going to be? What is, it, what is the likelihood that he's going to be able to afford a home here in Santa Barbara and be able to raise a family and, and continue the, the tradition of hearts in Santa Barbara? I hope that's the case. It looks really hard to see that given how expensive things are and, and how limited the opportunities for jobs are. Um, and then, you know, the things that the county needs to focus on, which is, you know, how, how are we running a criminal justice system in an equitable, racially fair way? Um, and how can we provide a social safety net for people who cannot support themselves and, and need help? Um, all these things fit together and are really daunting and challenging. But um, there, are, there are so many opportunities in a community like this because of the nonprofit sector and all the, the people who want to help in that space um, so that there, we can do things here that we can't do in other places because we have those resources. And, and I want us to be able to do that. And that, that's what keeps me going every day. What about the cannabis issue? Obviously, that's been in the news everywhere. We had the grand jury report, uh, the civil grand jury report come out. It was the focal point of the Williams Caps uh, campaign. Um, how do you feel like the counties handled the regulation of, of cannabis outdoor or the regulation of growing cannabis? Um, how's the county done overall? Well, I came to the board after the initial decisions had been made that created the regulatory structure for yeah. cannabis um, in Santa Barbara County. And since coming here, it has occurred to me that we needed to make some changes and we need to, to modify and shrink the, impra, impa, the, the footprint of cannabis in the county. So we, we enacted a cap on the total acreage and we eliminated outdoor cannabis cultivation from a number of different districts and most recently did that in regards to the existing um, developed rural neighborhoods in the county. So I'm trying to find the balance point between having a sustainable long-term cannabis industry that provides jobs and income to the county um, with protecting neighborhoods and trying to find the right neighborhood protections to to make these things compatible with existing agriculture and neighborhoods and it's not easy at all this is a very very complicated subject and um, the industry itself is evolving fast and it's this is probably one of those places where the time is really difficult because there are land use entitlement uh, rights that some of these property owners have, and then there's the neighborhoods that, that pre-existed those operations. And how to balance those and find the right um, spot is, is not easy, but I think we're making progress. I, th I know we're making progress because we're making, we're making changes. And there are people who legitimately can say that's not fast enough, mm -hmm. and there are others on the other side who say, you know, you're eliminating jobs and you're, you're killing businesses. And so this is not, um, it's not easy, and uh, there, are, there is significant pain involved. But I, I do ultimately think that, you know, the wine industry, for example, and the cannabis industry can coexist. I, I know that the, the market for the wine grapes and the wine industry is changing dramatically because of demographic change. And that demographic change um, is, is our big consumers of cannabis. And so these things probably need to collaborate and need to have partnerships and need to have um, a path of coexistence because the market's going to demand it. They're, you're going to have customers 20 years from now that are as equally interested in cannabis as, as in wine, 
And um, the smart entrepreneurs are going to figure out how to marry those things and provide that. And um, I think that the technology will change over time and make this that make it better in terms of neighborhood impacts. But it, it's we're at that stage now where it's really new and it's not very well refined, and there are impacts, and um, we're trying to fix those. Just you know, as we sort of wrap up here, swinging back to the beginning in COVID nineteen, do you have any thoughts? Any inside intelligence? I mean, how long are we going to be dealing with this? Are we just waiting for the vaccine at this point? Um, are we just? Do you have any sort of outlook on mm-hmm. how long we're going to have to be? living in this modified way? I don't have any inside insight. Mm. Um, I thought we were at the, the end of the beginning mm. about a month ago, and that has not proven to be true. Mm. And, and I don't know whether this is a second surge or the first surge continuing. Mm. You know, I don't know that anybody's going to know the answer to those kind of questions until after this is all over and done. But I do think we have to begin to start thinking now about what this, what is, what living with the virus is like, mm-hmm. as opposed to I think our initial mindset is how do we get through mm-hmm. a period of time to get to the other side. Now I think we have to actively start thinking about if we all wore masks and washed our hands and stayed six feet apart and paid attention to these things, can we coexist in a different way uh, with businesses being open? And that's you know I think that's an open challenge because. That's what every community across the country has tried to do to, to reopen mm-hmm. and you know manage the health uh, crisis, and it's not going well right now. You know anybody in your life who's had COVID nineteen? My nephew in the Bay Area, my sister's son, um, had a pretty nasty case of it. Didn't end up being hospitalized, mm-hmm. but he had you know real difficulty breathing, and I think just the fact that he was a young, healthy kid, young kid. Um, 25-year-old kid, um, mm-hmm. you know, made him um, weather it safely. My mom is uh, 89 years old. She's going to have her 90th birthday. We're very concerned about her all the time. She's very strong and healthy and fortunately hasn't had any issues. But, you know, it doesn't take – there is somebody in your circle of friends for just about every person, mm-hmm. if you think about it, who has been uh, affected by this. And that, you know, that's – new that's never happened in our lifetimes to have a disease like this coming that close with potentially fatal outcomes and um, it is a serious health threat that we have to take seriously and what about you going forward you're happy at the board of supervisors you everybody's always talking about well greg can do this and he can do that you know they had you in the assembly and the senate and you know mayor and you know all kinds every position open you know they had you going for it at some point or you know he could if he wanted to uh what's you know you've got a bright future still what what where do you want to go i'm really happy right where i am and i you know i think that i am using my abilities um, well here at the Board of Supervisors. And I'm just, I'm content and I'm really honored to have the support of my voters in the second district. And um, I wanna represent them as best I possibly can um, through this moment. And, you know, we'll see what the future holds, but I'm really, I don't know that the idea of commuting to Sacramento or Washington DC makes a lot of sense when I have a, a mile commute to my office here um, and I live in a great place and a great community and um, have a lot of friends and family that love me here. All right, Greg. Well, it's always a pleasure to uh, report on you and cover you and you know listen to you talk, as I said. So 
good luck out there trying to uh, be the point person for COVID-19 and do everything else that you have to do as a member of the Board of Supervisors uh, going forward. Thanks for taking some time. Well, thank you, Josh. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you. You are the hardest working man in local journalism, and you get that reputation by uh, doing an incredible job of providing information on a daily basis, sometimes twice a day basis, uh, to our community, and we really, really appreciate and value that. So thanks. Thanks a lot, Greg. Appreciate it.